0: Welcome back to Minority Report. I'm your host, Salomon Flamenco. And today's show, we have Melanie and Sheila Cruz Morales, two recent first generation Georgetown graduates. They are also the founders and directors of College Access for Non Citizens, an organization which helps first generation students gain access to higher education. Welcome to the show.
1: Yay! Oh my, oh my gosh, this you. is so exciting. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. We're so excited to be here today and to have. An open dialogue on really important topics that are happening around the world. Yes. So uh, how are we going to distinguish ourselves? I'm Melanie and I'm Shayla. Nice. Well, thank you so much for having us.
0: Of course. Thank you for coming on. I guess for some context to the listeners, we talked a couple weeks ago about having you guys come on and we had like an outline of what to talk about. And then a week ago, a judge in the Southern District of Texas, Andrew Hannon, ruled that DACA, once again, was uh, illegal. But, and this is something I'm going to ask you guys about to really parse out the details, the status of DACA holders has not changed. Is that correct?
1: Yes. So Melanie and I both were aware that this decision was going to come out since like the beginning of of summer. We've been waiting for this decision. And we also were aware that this was the decision that was going to happen. So currently right now, Andrew Hannon ruled DACA as unlawful. Once again, there aren't any immediate changes to the program. So if you can renew, you can still renew. But, you know, you can't apply if you haven't applied before. So there's still some restrictions on the program. Yeah, again, one of the biggest components that has not been addressed is the fact that there will not be new applicants able to apply for DACA, which is something that has occurred since 2017, and then later on when there was a change in in the in the program for a bit. But now again, no more applicants. So there are a lot of undocumented youth who are being excluded out of this program, and now the program is really on the brink of dying for once and for all genuinely is what the consensus is being talked about in the community and it will be the second time that the DACA case goes back to the Supreme Court so that's where we're at again
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and now I feel like this is really important to talk about because I've been off the air for a couple months, and a lot has happened in those couple months. But we just talked about DACA being ruled unlawful and the affirmative action case that happened earlier this summer. And so this does seem like a very precarious moment for ethnic minorities in the U.S. and especially undocumented communities in the U.S. How are you guys feeling about this? I mean, what have you guys felt about this current ruling? And do you see any path forward that can rectify some of these Yeah,
1: that's I think that's a really good question because I have an immediate answer that comes up to my mind. And I think processing this summer, this past summer with um, the end of race based affirmative action and again with just another judicial court release on the DACA decision is that this country is getting louder and louder and louder by the ruling of white supremacy over and over and over again and I think that that's something that is being left out in the conversation because what I see when I see these rulings when I see this impact that's going to affect the BIPOC students um, and undocumented students it's all white supremacist like white supremacy happening in clear direct action and I think mm-hmm. that's the scariest part of it all yeah. because it's getting louder and louder with whether it's the judicial branch, that if you are an ethnic minority in this country, you really don't matter to them in the eyes of the law. And that's what I get every single time I see a breaking news and I see an update on the DACA decision or anything that will affect me in my communities. Yeah, I think that <clears throat> since the beginning of the the summer when affirmative action was taken away, it was really, really painful because it's very loud and clear to to me and Melanie of who they are attacking. They're attacking students of color. They're attacking people of color. They're attacking undocumented people. And like we've seen Roe v. Wade was overturned over a year ago. And that is a huge fundamental human right, right? And then we see, again, affirmative action, race-based affirmative action being taken away as well. And you just keep seeing these rights being taken away. And when it was happening, I thought, why isn't anyone panicking the way we need to be panicking? And you know, I don't wanna instill like fear and and so on mm-hmm. onto people, but it's just, we need to understand what we're seeing in front of our eyes. Because immediately when that case happened, I started thinking about Brown versus Board, like, You know, we think of Brown versus Board as like it's a landmark case. And sometimes people think that it's untouchable. But the reality is we've been seeing these laws being affected. And who's to say that these other laws won't also be affected? Um, So with the news of the DACA case, it's not surprising at all. But it doesn't nonetheless, it's still very painful. Mm
0: hmm. Mm hmm. I think that's on my mind the previous four years under the Trump admin, right? There was a lot of bad things happening almost all the time. But I feel like one of the most insidious long-term effects was the packing of the courts. And Andrew Hannon wasn't a Trump-appointed judge. He was under uh, W. But that's still a very real concern, especially when you look at the Supreme Court and you see a lot of these decisions like Dobbs, like with race-based affirmative action. And it is really concerning. It's genuinely very scary. And I totally agree. I think... People should be really raising the alarm bells now more than ever. I guess I'm just trying to see how can you kind of weave those together, do you think? You know, like, it is all very real what's happening. And that's why I really respect you and your work in terms of giving education access to people who need it. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. Well, first off, I just want to, like, highlight your point about how... I think Donald Trump left office, but people don't understand that that man's impact is long lasting. And I think we see it perfectly with just the courts and just the amount of violence that they have instilled in us. And I think that a lot of people were at peace to see perhaps a uh, a Democratic president in office, but it's like, that's not how politics works. Those lasting effects of Donald Trump will ha- ha- are being felt and will be felt for the foreseeable future. For many people, who he made it, he he made his agenda on attacking, and to this day, Donald Trump is inflicting pain on the undocumented community. It was 2017 where he first tried killing DACA completely, and here we are still in a state of limbo where we don't see a. Pathway to citizenship at all, and we don't see any push or acknowledgement from the Biden administration on their end as well. So mm-hmm. it, it's it's very difficult. Yeah. But, I could... but back to your question, I think that you brought up a good point, and it's like, how do we weave these issues together? And I think that that's that's my point, especially as an Indigenous woman and as an Indigenous activist who carries a lot of intersectional identities. And I think that in every single movement that exists, intersectionality needs to be centered. But I think that we need to take it up a notch. And what that means is truly like weaving intersectionality in everything that we do. And I think that begins by centering the conversation of citizenship because it is left out in so many movements. It's left out in the climate movement. Like, you know, I think that... The work that we do at College Access for Non-Citizens makes me really, really proud because we tackle the issues at the root, you know? Whenever you're in a policy class, you learn that the best types of implemented policies happen from bottom to up because there's just no way that top-down is gonna trickle down and create the long-lasting change that you wanna see. So at CAN, what we do is we, Find, but also we have students reaching out to us um, for guidance, for tips, um, for solidarity, for advice and for mentorship. And I'm very blessed enough to have fought really, really hard alongside my sister for a college education and education from Georgetown University and being able to live in Washington, D.C., being able to be in conversations with public officials, being in conversations with the president and the Biden administration. You know, all of these opportunities I've had to fight for, but, you know, I use them as tools to also bring back everything that I learn and everything that I see to also help my community. And so what that means is that you know, I Can We Help students, and particularly undocumented students, students from who are Black, Indigenous, and students of color. And again, this is where you see that intersectionality is so important, because no matter what, we all have different identities that all cross one another. But back to what I'm saying about citizenship, it needs to be a focus point for everyone in every single movement and I bring up I talk about the climate crisis and I talk about it because it's here and we're living through it and we can't continue to ignore undocumented people in every single aspect so again I really do think about the double weaving and I think about how we need to take it up a notch in every organizing space to make sure that we're not leaving people out you know there's so much that going on in this country and in this world but what we really need to understand is that at the end of the day they all wrote from the same place Mm -hmm. yeah i I think i think you say a lot and i come back to this conversation that i had with um professor olufemi taiwo alongside shayla one day we were in his office hours and we were talking about citizenship and sovereignty and borders and all these things migration and he he is a citizen with parents of immigrants uh, who are immigrants and i was just confiding in our experience and something that he came he he said was well i think a lot of people just have to sit back understand that they all have these identities as well but mm-hmm. i think that some way that we can create about be- the way that we can start to initiate to create a better world is asking yourself I understand that this is my experience now what am I not experiencing and what is not affecting me what is ongoing out in the world that I am completely like um unaware of or just don't have the knowledge and the experience because I don't face it and if it is unjust then why do why am I not caring and I think that that's, that was a very simple question that he posed for, that we all should pose to one another. Um, and obviously we all have different capacities or whatever, so I'm not really saying much, but I'm saying like, I think that's that's a very good way for citizens to start, sit with themselves and understand their privilege as American citizens and just fall back for a second and just think what is going on in this country? What is going on within people who are Living around me, amongst me, who are my classmates? Who are my friends? Who are my partners? Who are like my community members that I am unaware of? And how do I I fit here? And when you start mm-hmm. having those questions, you start seeing where the double weaving can come in, where the intersectionality can come in, where your role in the good fight comes in.
0: Mm-hmm. It sounds like radical empathy to me. It sounds yeah. very much, yeah,
1: yeah, and 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 that's it. it it starts with em- and empathy, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's, it, it definitely starts with that. And I think that you bring up a point about capacity, right? And I think that capacity is something that needs to be talked about in for in every organizing space because there's only so much that we can do. You know, the system is so much larger than an individual. So that individual needs to take care of themselves. But I think that my point in saying that was that you need to one empathize and then two at least amplify
0: mm-hmm. right
1: and i think that that's that's something that we should all hold ourselves accountable to i think about other movements that my friends are are in and whether it's in the middle east or whether it's india or africa and you know especially when we talk about immigration because in the you know I'll never forget the quote that Dr. Angela Davis says and she believes that the problem of the 21st century is the problem of immigration and not just in the United States but not in in Europe but in Africa in in in, in, the in across the world everywhere and so what I think about it's just you know there's so much that we can do but the bare minimum that we should be beginning to at least act on is amplifying those who are doing the work those who are experiencing the limitations and restrictions of these laws and and the hate that goes on to this world and show radical empathy and at least radical solidarity that I see Mm -hmm. you I hear you and we're in the struggle together
0: Mm -hmm. I completely agree and I do want to circle back on something because I I'm trying to think of how to phrase it, but before we started recording, we were talking about one of the challenges in this specific space as it comes to undocumented peoples in the United States is the voices that need to speak up and the faces that mean we maybe don't see. And I'd love to hear if you guys have any thoughts on that, just in terms, because I do feel like you guys are very important voices in this space. You guys have been featured on the new york times and telemundo and uh univision and npr did i make that last one up i apologize um, okay
1: the white house the white house georgetown university (laughs) no i think i think you 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 bring up a great point and that's the way that the immigration movement has not seen a path of reform or a pathway to citizenship in the last 40 years you know within the last 40 years, um, a lot of things have occurred. And I think about to write, like with you saying this, I think a lot about the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think a lot about how me and Shayla grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, 10 minutes outside Manhattan. And our city was one of the, our town was one of the The epicenter epicenter of COVID-19 during 2020, March of 2020. And I saw a lot of community members pass away, a lot. And it was a very personal issue that occurred in my family as well. But something that happened through the pandemic, through 2020, is that Shayla and I saw no immigrant voices, being centered when immigrants were the ones who working, who were working the groceries, who were working all the jobs, the essential jobs, who were working at the hospitals, who were cleaning the hospitals, who were cleaning after the doctors, who were taking care of like the patients, nurses, the DACA recipients, um, well. DACA recipients are nurses, our caretakers, are all of these essential people who have who helped us push through that really difficult time, and there was not a single highlight to the fact that we community members were dying and that a lot of undocumented people were dying and we couldn't return back to our country. That, mm-hmm. that, that experience um, brings up so much more pain than I can ever really describe in, in a conversation right now. Yep, but of course, Something that Shayla and I did is that we we had we we were losing our minds. We were losing our minds, and we said we have to go and we have to do something and we have to advocate in the same way that a lot of racialized communities and low income communities were disproportionately harmed by COVID nineteen. But where Native Americans, Americans, just every type of racialized group, had their own experience, but people were ignoring the fact that citizenship was affecting in a, a, a drastic way where. People who had not returned home in 20 years died in the US stateless, without status, without a pathway to citizenship, and the, and they were they were essential workers and they never saw justice. They never saw health care either. <laughs> they never saw health care. And so what mm-hmm. Shayla and I did and Teen Vogue published a piece on the advocacy work that we did during 2020 was that we were the leading faces of being like, Hey, my community members are suffering. Something really terrible happened to our family and we're speaking up about it because, because we're it's a huge human- we're human beings living through this and that's the way that i think the american government has been so so fortunate that they silence undocumented immigrants they and and how could you you know i think they, they are invisibilized and i think that i do i as a DACA recipient currently i have the privilege of being protected away from deportation but even that the program is on the brink of like I don't know, not like dying. So who knows? But within that program, I had been given, Shayla and I had been given the voice to the power to to feel empowered enough to go out into the streets and say, I'm a member of the undocumented community and I'm going to call it out for what it is. There are not many voices who are able, allowed to say that. And every day. The number of DACA recipients are shrinking little by little. You know, we started off with eight hundred thousand um, eight hundred thousand DACA recipients in twenty seventeen, and I don't know. I don't have the perfect number. We have like six hundred We have six hundred um, thousand DACA recipients now, and yeah. Wow. So it's it's interesting too when when the White House or Bi- or President Biden or you know all these people in office talk about this program when it's just like. If we're being honest about it, like 600,000 people. So a lot of people don't renew because they're incapable of paying the renewal fee that is $500. Like my sister and I have both struggled to pay our DACA renewals like yeah. multiple times. So that comes out like that comes randomly every two years. Yeah, and so you have to we be prepared for it. So we know how hard and difficult it is to even just do that. But I, it's interesting, though, because it's. It's a double-edged sword, really. And it's like, one, the sword is, one, DACA was never enough, right? And, it, uh-huh. and it, that's one, one thing that a lot of us feel. And it's because, one, it's the, no pathway to citizenship. Two, it's just protecting a small, small, small fraction of our community. And two, it's dying. So it's like, how do you say that it's not enough? While it's also just being like also taken away, so at the same time it's a very very huge privilege, um, but the reality is is that elected officials want to act like the program is something so much more than what it really is, mm-hmm. and it's 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 not. It's it's interesting as to what will happen in the next couple of years to the future of DACA because. You know, the only thing that we can continue to say is that we need a citizenship. We need a pathway to citizenship. And that means Mm -hmm. that Congress needs to act. And, you know, as silly as you might think or as some people might think that it is to even say these words when they haven't even shown us proof that they care about us in the past 40 years, it is still worth demanding. It is still worth fighting for because we need it.
0: People mm-hmm. need it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I forget. Oh, my God. I forget who co-sponsored the bills. It, the closest we came was when Obama was still president. Or am I wrong with McCain and Marco Rubio? Or am I wrong about that? I feel like there was a moment when bipartisan support was almost there, and then it, it died out. And I think that's, like, such a tragedy to me, because it's such an ongoing issue that... Can I speak candidly? Is that okay with everyone? I am very concerned about the lack of movement on the Biden admin's part on this issue because I feel. How can I say this delicately? My concern is that the previous inaction of this issue directly led to Trump, and I I feel like it's a direct line to the Trump presidency. And that Trump, Mm -hmm. uh, Biden ignoring it again, is going to lead to something similar, if not worse that's my concern yeah yeah.
1: and and so what i want to say to that right it's like and i've said this in meetings with elected officials before and you know i think about how the democratic party really wants to use donald trump as a scapegoat for the mess that the immigration movement is right now and just the, the the policy issue in general and, you know, it's it's obvious that Donald Trump definitely set the movement back. It totally did. But of also course. we have to talk about President Obama and we have to talk about the anti-immigration laws that were already taking place. Right. And so I think that what now you see is happening is that the Biden administration and the Democratic Party overall just saw it's like, OK, immigration is not at the top of their list in priorities, They already have seen people get away with anti-immigration rhetoric, and they already know that no one is going to impose, no one's going to bring it up as a problem to them. I think that they can, they truly think that they can get away with it is Mm -hmm. the reality. And that's what really scares Mm me. That's what scares me. And I really think that the radical paradigm shift that many of us have been talking about, you know, Bernie Sanders has been talking about this, AOC has been talking about this, and we've been talking about this. I think that it's inevitable, and I think that we i don't know if there will be a candidate who who will make it a priority I, I think that I think you bring up a really good point, both of you. I think that when we look at just American politics overall, there has never i i at least within my current existing time period, I have never seen the 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 call to action and the empathy and just like understanding the fact that undocumented immigrants are human beings living in the United States and whose humanity and for further contribution to this um, country is worth acknowledging. And that's how they get away with exploitation. That's how they get away with the exploitation on our bodies, on our mental health, on our Mm -hmm. physical health. On our, inc- our entire existence, you know, I think a lot about what I said recently, and I am 23 years old. Um, and this is just to share my story because my story deserves to be shared as well as every undocumented immigrant living in this country without a promising future of ever obtaining citizenship right now and that's how i feel myself and and i look at it and i'm i'm 23 years old i came to this country in 2004 next year it will be 20 years that i've been living in this country and i still don't see a pathway to citizenship and people, people can feel a lot of ways about it. You know, people can think whatever they want to say. But I know what what I am. And I know that I'm American. I am indigenous. And because of sovereignty and borders and because of politics, the land that was mine has been taken and has been colonized and has been established in, in the way that they can dictate. When I will ever be recognized on my own land of Turtle Island, and that to me Mm -hmm. is 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 mind boggling. But all of these people in office get away with it. They get away with it, and they go to sleep at night and don't think about the fact that anyone will ever call on their exploitation Mm -hmm. and what it it currently could look like. And if yeah, and so I think that to add on to your point, because this is what truly is the root of citizenship it comes down to race. It comes down to race. And I think a lot about the. so I, I worked under Professor Donna Brazil, who was the DNC, the, the chair of the DNC. And she wrote a paper, um, not a paper, she wrote for the Grigio. And she talked about undocumented black people. And she talked mm-hmm. about how immigration is a black issue. And I, and I, you know, She told me that she was very inspired by Melanie and I to write this paper. And, you know, that to me was kind of showed me like, wow, like if people really take a moment, think about it, really analyze the issue, like they can see that one, you know, we're not asking for anything crazy. We are actually like human beings and we do deserve rights. And so that was one proof that a little bit of research can make you feel that way. And two, also just that it comes back down to race. And I think a lot about what you're saying about exploitation and that what's happening at the border. And you could say this for literally any country, any nation right now, especially colonized um, nations, right? You see that the people who are mostly affected by these borders and the violence that goes on at these borders are Indigenous people and Black people. Mm-hmm. And... If you've studied the, the history of citizenship in the United States, you understand that, you know, Native Americans didn't get citizenship till like way after, you know, Black Americans didn't get citizenship till way after as well. And so you understand that this is super tied to labor mm-hmm. and What we're seeing right now is that, one, it really sucks every single time that we talk about immigrants and we focus on labor, you know, but it's something that needs to be talked about because I'm not saying that our lives are worthy because of the labor that we do. I'm saying that the labor that we do is the precise reason why these people are invalidating our existence and our humanity. And we we truly see it whether like just going down the street on in Washington D.C. all these apartment buildings that are getting built who do you think is just building, building them you know mm-hmm. who do you think is risking their lives every single day so it goes back down to it citizenship is tied to race citizenship is works differently for indigenous and black people what? and it comes back down to the question that I always say and it's like. At the end of the day, we need to build a democracy yes. that nurtures and loves and cares for Black and a, Indigenous people. We need a radical democracy, like, Angela, radical D- democracy. like Angela, mm-hmm. Angela Davis would say. But no, I want to emphasize on your point, you know, it's been a week and I have not seen President Biden say a single thing about DACA. Maybe I'm not looking at the news, but I'm not uh, seeing it, you know, uh, I'm not seeing his response. The press secretary gave a statement. And, you know, it's the statement, you know, when I talked to President Biden, he told me, we're going to protect DACA. We're going to make sure that you're protected. Um, and he said this to me and I said, thank you. But, you know, all undocumented immigrants matter. Like my parents matter. I think that I I was reading a statement from the President's Alliance on Higher Education and Immigration And I want to read out a a quote right now because I think that this was something really close to what I've been thinking. And the quote says, the ultimate way forward for dreamers with and without DACA and the country as a whole remains Congress delivering on the wishes of a strong majority of the American public and enacting an accessible pathway to citizenship for all. Yes, it's a call to action, two decades in the making, and one that seems almost rote to emphasize given the history of the issue but we must continue to empathize that reality. Meanwhile, state policymakers should continue to build on the recent policy successes successes in states such as Maryland and Massachusetts and advance licenses, tuition equity, and other policies that empower DREAMers to study, to work, and participate more fully in their states while we call on Congress to do its job and to resolve this issue. And I, I think about that statement a lot because it said a lot of things. The number one thing is... Congress is a tricky Pandora box that we can even like go on to open right but it's it's incredibly telling and I wish more liberals and I wish more Democrats would sit with the fact that President Biden does not care about immigration he does not care and it's it's crazy when you when when like when people who are not well aware of this issue don't know what what the stance on is, but like as a person sitting here, there's absolutely no, like not a doubt within my mind that this 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 issue is 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 um, going under the rug is beneficial for all American politicians who are complacent with um, the current situation and reality that we are we, we live in you know, and and, and, and it's extremely disturbing when you understand the way that American politics works and why this is the agenda that is ongoing. But I think that I want to emphasize on how much state politics matters. I want Mm -hmm. to emphasize on the individual collective power that we can build across states and across some legislators who do care. And hopefully, like, we need to build a movement where immigration comes up on the top of the top most pressing issues of the next president of you know yeah and i and and i agree and this is why i agree it's it's because of the asylum see- seekers like mm-hmm. this, this is what it comes down to cuz if, if we're being honest right i think that the the rules that i and you and immigration use for asylum. It's 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 a very hard process, right? And it varies for different na- nations and countries mm-hmm. on how easy it is to to get as- asylum granted. And you know, especially when you come from Central America or Mexico, it's, it's so much more harder. And I think about the truth of the matter is is undocumented immigrants come to this country because they need asylum, you know. People think that econ- the uh, the reason for migrating because of economic issues isn't a valid issue mm-hmm. because whatever's happening in your country, that's your country's fault and that's that's the consequence that you need to live through. Mm-hmm. And it's messed up because the truth of the matter is why do you think our home countries are so destabilized? Why do you think that we're escaping from poverty? You know, I think about every single issue in the world that we all face. And I come back down to poverty, you know, Martin Luther King, he comes down, he came down to poverty. You know, that's, that's blasphemy. If we're being, if if we're truly talking about our world and our existence, poverty, Um, no human being should be living that way. And so when I think about the climate crisis, you know, people Mm -hmm. are going to be seeking asylum for so many different reasons all over the world people from all over the world were you know we're talking about um Libya right now yeah and the amount of floods and it's like these people you know they might need to 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 seek asylum right and each reason why all these people are seeking asylum all of them are valid we are all looking for a sanctuary right and now we're at a point where the united states isn't a sanctuary in the ways that we think that it might be, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a truth that needs to be that it that that remains, and it's just the value of the American citizenship carries a sanctuary, and just being in America carries some sort of sanctuary in, in comparison, comparison to, to other world. other nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, my point is all undocumented immigrants are seeking asylum. Our families come here for a better life because we're seeking asylum. And that's the bigger issue. It's people, nations.
0: I wanna go back to something you said about immigration as a black and indigenous issue because, right, I'll be upfront. I have privilege. I'm a citizen in this country. I'm not indigenous. I'm just like some mestizo dude. And I feel like that has always been a gripe of mine of like, the mestizo identity is how the conversations are framed. And it's like, oh, they don't like us. They don't care about us. And it's not just mestizo. It's also a lot of like white Latino people. And I'm like, respectfully, this is not about us. A lot of the violence, especially if you look back to what happened in 2018 with family separation, yeah. I was very upset about how the dialogue ended up beca- like being framed, where a lot of... Respectfully, like Mexican mestizo people would be like, oh, they're doing this to us. And I'm like, a lot of those people are indigenous and from Central America. Like it is not only a Mexican issue. And now you can continue to see the harm being done (laughs) with people from Haiti, with people from Venezuela, with people from Cuba. Like this is ongoing, but the conversation is being framed in this really whack way. And I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that that you'd like to expound on.
1: I do, and I think that you bring up a great point about child family separation i I am a um I studied philosophy and government at Georgetown, and um one of the papers that was the most meaningful to me was breaking down the evilness of be- evilness in terms of morality with immigration policies that separated families and if you look at those records to this day. I think I don't want to get I don't want to m- mess up my numbers, but I think it was around like over two thousand five hundred children were separated under Trump's administration. And I'm, I I wrote this paper last year in December. So I did it in the fall semester of 2022. And I was looking at Biden's efforts to re relocate these families and reconnect them again. And I think at that point he had only done so for five hundred kids and I had to do a lot of research and you think and you think and you think about it and you read all the reports that are coming out and it's indigenous people from Guatemala, from El Salvador, from Central America and indigenous Mexicans who Mm -hmm. will probably. Who primarily are being separated at the border? Who are being lost at the border? Who are dying at the border? I saw a report that was saying that oh, the U.S. and Mexican border is now the deadliest like point of like border throughout the the entire world right now. And it's like these are indigenous migrants who are dying, and people don't care, and people don't care that there are little indigenous children being separated from their parents and. We Like what is happening to the rest of the 2000 children who have not been like reconnected with their parents like that is lives destinies that are being impacted and changed forever for the Mm -hmm. foreseeable future for these people and they don't they and no one cares because they are black and or indigenous and it's that they and, don't and, speak English and they sometimes. don't speak English or they don't speak Spanish extent, yeah, They're mm-hmm. speaking their own indigenous um, language in these borders and people are desensitized to their pain and their suffering and their realities and it's sick and it's disgusting and it's inhumane and it needs to be talked about so when when you bring that up it's like that that is how you see the layer of violence going on the border and their citizenship it's like anti-racialization and colonialism and language accessibility. Yeah. It is, mm-hmm. it, it, and they get away with it's so it. much of it because these are people who, co- through colonial lenses, are are primitive, are primitive, and, quote unquote, and quote unquote. And well, my thing is like, hmm, I hope the listeners can differentiate our voices. But just one thing that I always say is that there are layers to settler colonialism. Mm-hmm. And these layers are sometimes, sometimes you don't even have the language to identify them. But I feel like within these past years, I've been really um, lucky to and grateful to be able to name my experiences. But the truth is that there's, there's layers and components to it. And I think about it, and I think that that's why the government continues to get away with it mm-hmm. because these layers are invisible, but they're palpable. You know, you live mm-hmm. through them. And I think about the undocumented experience as a Native person, you know. I I was born in Oaxaca. My pa- my family is That's still right. in Oaxaca, you know. Shout out to my pueblo, Santa Catarina, yo sono tu. But I say this, though, because it's so wild when you think about colonization and settler colonialism. And it's, we are talking about Turtle Island, And we're talking about the fact that I, as an undocumented indigenous woman, can't move. I can't travel. Like, traveling is such a human right. Just migrating and and seeing the world the way that we were supposed to see the world. You know, I think about my friends who who don't need to even, like, get their, their visas to travel because, like, American citizenship just allows you to, like, flow through the world like no matter what right Mm -hmm. and it's just little things like that about the undocumented experience that is so specific to us but even more so when you're an undocumented black or indigenous person I, I, i mean i think um this is all very very important because we're talking about migration and movement right we're talking about movement and and something that keeps coming up to mind and something that needs to be held space for is, I don't know if you remember, I don't really remember when this happened, but it was, I think last summer, I think it was last summer when around 40 migrants died in on the border, crossing into the border and they were in a trailer mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they died of over, over exposure, the
0: overheating.
1: Yeah. And these were babies. These were women. These were young people. These were 17 year olds. These were just people's souls, you know, and as an undocumented woman who crossed the border, I have to sit with that pain and read that story. And that is the most heartbreaking thing that people don't understand, that movement, that borders, that out of necessity, this is what we are willing to do. We are willing to put ourselves in dangerous situations that have been designed by the border by the government and we do so either ways because of We're necessity our and our we are fighting for our lives and i think that people citizens read that and don't even care they can go about their day but for me that opened up nightmares that opened up a sense of like grief that you cannot even begin to grapple with for more than five minutes because you will lose your mind as an undocumented being seeing how easily that could have been you or how that could have been a community member who just arrived a couple of weeks ago. And I think that people are desensitized because these are black and brown bodies, because these Mm -hmm. are indigenous people, because these are people who who, who? through white supremacy's lives have been just, you know, subjugated historically and people are okay with it. But that is the type of gravity of harm that citizenship and borders are inflicting in today's world and people need to wake the fuck up and... Say this is not right, and why is this being supported? Why is this allowed? And why are we desensitized? And 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 that and that story needs to be talked about because it's it's so evil in so many capacities, and and hmm. it's violence and it's it's lives.
0: Yeah, I I can't even begin to. I mean, words don't do it justice. How much I agree with you, honestly. I mean, that was specifically that moment. I don't even know how to phrase it and I might like cut this out, but it was just such like a radicalizing yet cynical moment for me because when that happened and I saw how little people cared, I mean, it's, that's, it's maddening. There's no other way to say it. And it's even between us, like we live such, we have a different experience just because of that fucking line, right. And that citizenship it, but it's still like, I don't know how, I don't know how people can live with themselves, like to just see it happen and not care. You know, I mean that's something I don't know. I mean, that's something that like the people after us are gonna judge us very harshly for. Absolutely. And there's yeah.
1: Absolutely. And, and can I say and, this and, all the time. And and it's crazy because I, I I think a lot about that day and that weekend and that whole that whole week and time period of processing that I remember. And this is this can get very intimate, but I'll share it. It was you don't have to I- if
0: you don't want to also. Like I it, it okay. has to
1: be voice, but me my mom and my dad and my brother we were like in in the car I think and I was it was like a family day and like none of us really wanted to bring it up because no one wanted to really talk about it with each other because when you start talking about these open wounds oof, it it's 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 a cascade of just emotions and grief and a lot of things that can't be put into words but we just all looked at each other and we cried 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 and we mourned for these people who we didn't know because we know who they are and we know what kind of stories and pains and similarities that we share and we know what was at stake for them and we know what dream they had. We know what... what. American promise has been given; it has been like branded out through the whole world, and how you have illusions. You have illusions of bringing a better life for yourself, for for your family, for survival, and you risk it all, and you 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 endure the horrible, horrible like circumstances, and that's what could happen, and no one blinks. And I just remember my whole family crying about it. And I think that was just, it's like you said, it's a very radicalizing moment, but it's also incredibly pessimistic because you are looking at at a lot of death and you're looking at, at a lot of sadness. And to me, I just wish that more people could just sit with themselves and read that and be like, this is going on on the border of my country and what can I do and how should I care and what can I do, you know?
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I want to pivot towards something a little more towards community organizing, but I do want to say, <laughs> uh, yeah, for a country with a lot of sins, I mean, that's, it felt like a, a carnal one, you know, like that's, and it's just so recent and I, I wish we did a better job of grieving collectively. Yeah, Dude, like for that moment and for what happened in 2020 where a lot of us i feel like don't talk about it like that was you know and it's like it's it's going to affect us in the future and it's just you can't really see what that means yet you know what i mean and this is just coming from like on 24 you guys are 23 like it's hard to see how we fully process those years and what's still happening now i wanted to talk about community organizing though and i want to talk about practice Because going back to the faceless conversation and the giving voice to the voiceless, this is kind of headier. I don't know if you guys even want to talk about this, but I'm really curious, like the past, what, 10, 12 years have seen a big rise in organizations that involve mass mobilization, maybe without a figurehead, right? And I'm thinking about BLM. I'm thinking about the Arab Spring. I'm wondering, do you see a future in that? Or do you see the usefulness in a figurehead? Like, I'd love to just get your thoughts on that.
1: <clears throat> I think that the one of the most important lessons that you, any organizer with a good heart needs to learn and comes to learn is that there is no, there's no one, there's no one face to a movement, right? Like, we can't do this alone like no matter how much like we we try and try to at least like speak up we can't do it alone so i think that organizing and and speaking to one another across different identities needs to occur i always always emphasize on the need for international solidarity and i think that that's the most radical thing that we can do truly care about other nations care about our brothers and sisters who live across the world from us and feel their pain and you know hope and 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 vice versa because that's what we need that's what we need I think that I think that we are all flawed I think that we are all we always have so much more space to learn from one another and I think that the only way we can do it is horizontal dialogue is what I think of it as. You know, I think that if you I, I have like this picture in my head with like the world and everyone holding hands across the world or whatever. Right. But the truth of the matter is, is that there's experiences that our neighbors go through that we will never understand. You know, people who grow up in war live a whole different reality than the people who have never who live in a country like the United States who have never had the war right in front of our eyes. So things like that. But I remember there was one, of uh, we were discussing this in one of my critical race theory classes that I took at Georgetown, and we were asking the question, is it really possible to have international solidarity? And should we even be embracing it and looking, at, looking towards it? And I was just so shocked that we were debating this because the obvious answer is, Yes, like we need it. There is, there is no way, right? And, and and I keep coming back to the climate crisis because it just gives us so many answers that we all need to look towards. For anyone interested in any type of policy, the climate crisis is is there, right? And just just makes me think, like in a couple of years, we don't know where we're gonna be, land wise, ocean. Yeah wise, we don't know where we're gonna be. Food wise, and and so what I'm saying is that at the end of the day, we need to look beyond citizenship status, and that means the need to look beyond nations and forming solidarity, um, and creating movements that really one embrace the difference of one another, and not looking to make you know, dare to create a perfect nation. No, we need to understand that perfection doesn't really exist, but to strive to be a little bit more justice and community-oriented.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I
1: yeah. Uh, do I that question?
0: I think it did. I'll accept it. Thank you for checking <laughs> in on this. <laughs> I do think. It's like, that's the thing with the climate crisis, right? Is It's like, it really does feel like, it's, it just ruins that liberal conservative dynamic like it doesn't make sense like you can't like oh debate what we're gonna like it's gonna come no matter what like you know what i mean it's really it's like we're staring down the barrel of the anthropocene like it's here like we can't really have this debate anymore and it's like it's mind-boggling that we still are i get you 100 and i agree and it's like all these struggles are so interconnected you know like same. This struggle and the Palestinian struggle and the struggle of migrants in Europe—it's all connected because we're all being affected by the same things right now. All Sorry, connected. I don't. Yeah,
1: no, and and so I I had the privilege to meet uh, Dr. Angela Davis this this year when she came to Georgetown. So shout out to the organizers who organized that, but she surprised the shit out of me with her presentation what she had to say she came and she spoke about um the connectedness of Palestine and Ferguson right mm-hmm. and she also made the point to once again talk about undocumented people she made the point to think beyond borders and that's what it is because in in reality when we think about the climate crisis a tsunami isn't gonna stop at a border like a tornado like a a hurricane isn't gonna stop like you know and it's just evident that we were never supposed to live this way yeah sorry it's it's similar to like the COVID-19 pandemic like yo we went through a a pandemic a really bad one one that we haven't even begun to process (laughs) the effects of but it was traveling all over the world, you know? And it, I think that to me, it was a, a good example to show a lot of people how an issue is affecting the whole, is plaguing the whole world. And it's like, what? what is it here right now? It's white supremacy, it's imperialism, it's neo-colonialism, it's patriarchy, it's racism, it's classism, it's elitism, it's just all the hierarchical structures of taxonomies that just have been implemented in this world. That are that is the issue, and that is affecting all of us and 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 that solidarity is real. I think one thing that Dr. Angela Davis also said that was really interesting to me, and it's like she she, she said she harvests knowledge and she shares that knowledge with um with the world through her books. But the way that she harvests knowledge is by listening to the people who have it, who are suffering so much and that she do, she doesn't relate to that suffering and that she doesn't know about that suffering and she said mm-hmm. something that and, and I don't want to put the words into precise cuz I don't She talks don't, about do not remember people. that but she was like I hang out with poor people and poor I find woman. a poor woman and I find out the struggles of these poor women and then they t- they share their pain with me and I can conceptualize it and then I can talk about it and then I can write it in my book and then I can create theory about it and I was just like I, I felt so seen because Shayla and I have our immigration activists who have been working for the past 18 years. In 2017, when Donald Trump rescinded DACA, that's that. We're very outside first the Trump day, Tower. We went outside the Trump Tower, and I we said to the entire world, "Hey, we're undocumented. We're 17 years old, and this is what we believe in, and this is who we are fighting for." That's when and we came out of the shadows. Yay! That was yeah. the first time we ever talked about it, and and, and and it's crazy because any year before 2017. No one knew. I went my whole life with my best friends, and my best friends did not know that I was undocumented. My teachers did not know. Not a single person outside of my home knew that I was undocumented and, and that comes with a lot of shame of how you're growing up. But now that criminalization and, and, criminalization and, and dehumanization and all these things, but um, now as a 23 year old with a consciousness and with a, a degree, I I can understand exactly what that girl was going through and I can understand my reality now. And, and, and and it's scary and things are at stake and I'm not protected, but it's worth sharing your experience so that more people can see I'm not going through that and if there are people who find wrong with that as well they themselves can come to that understanding that like Dr. Angela Davis and she's talking about undocumented people she said it's the issue of of the 21st century that will only be exacerbated and to me having seeing people with that radical empathy is is beautiful it's a beautiful thing and it gives me hope and I know that there are a lot of people out existing who can share and display that in this world yeah and I think in you made a point that made me think about to one of your previous questions and so I think that the moment when I met Angela Davis and I talked to her about college access for non-citizens actually and she was like you're doing it you're doing the work continue and it was yo like I'm telling you like one of the best moments of my life like Angela Davis was talking about undocumented people and saw me. Like, I swear, in that moment, I felt like you it was a fight. divine moment. It was such a divine moment where I felt like she was talking to me. She was telling me, Hey, you're not crazy. You're actually onto something. You're not asking so for you're, too much. You're not asking for too much. Not only are you not asking for too much, but you're ahead of your time. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is like to be undocumented mm-hmm. because you understand that our humanity is universal. You understand that borders are not fucking real and shouldn't be dictating the quality of life that you have. And so back to your question about what do you think about organizing and movement and if if someone should just, you know, i just go back down to grassroots ap- activism is super sacred and it needs to be amplified and valued, right? And I see a lot of like activists these days, especially Gen Z. I think that so many of my friends, so many college students are activists. And I think that it's a beautiful thing because we come to realize that we need one another. Everyone needs to be doing this work. We all need to be firefighters. Like philosopher Olufemi Taiwo says, we all need to be firefighters as the world is burning. But it comes back down to the people who are doing the most radical work. The people who are com- or who are doing get getting at the root of the problem is grassroots uh, grassroots activists who are tied to their communities, who are tied to the people who are suffering. And I think that that's why the work that we do at Can is so sacred to me and so special to me because these are kids who like are from my community it's mm-hmm. like these are like you know the way the son nuestros paisanos like that's the way that i say it because that's how how grassroots it is and it's like you we have the ability to change and alter their futures in yeah. just little ways mm-hmm. man like just someone telling you that you can do this just met through mentorship and encouragement and empowerment we have the ability to ch- change wait change their 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 futures in a way and also create change makers. And so my point of this is though it's that it's time to center the activists who are poor. It's mm-hmm. time to center the activists who are undocumented. It's mm-hmm. time to center the activist that is queer and doesn't fit in anywhere. It's time to literally center the people at the fucking margins, the mm-hmm. people whose voices mm-hmm. aren't ever recognized, the ones who don't get time 100. I don't know. No, I think you make a lot of good points. And I, I want to say two things really quick. I I was an intern for the National Domestic Workers Alliance for about a year and a half. And it was a wonderful experience that only furthered my experience and my knowledge and In organizing spaces. But these women, the National Domestic Workers Lions in the chapter of DC, are primarily Black and Brown women, a lot of Central American women, and a lot of immigrant women, and a lot of survivors of gendered violence as well. Mm -hmm. On something that I saw that was so amazing through my time was that these women who are 45 years old, 50 years old, women like my mother, women who are domestic workers, women who clean houses, women who are the backbone of literally. Everything, go to work, go and clean three houses a week. And then they were there every single day, like when they needed to be organizing, coming to me with action days, coming to do protests, testifying in front of the DC Council with me, like sharing their stories. And these are women who like speak Spanish and don't speak English. And these are women who I had to work with and like prepare their stories and learn from. And that takeaway. Was the most beautiful and humbling experience of my life because, as an activist who um, speaks English, who is young right now, just seeing how the people at the most of the margins have so much. Power, so much power, so much consciousness, so much knowledge, like people want to strip that away from the very people who are suffering. Let me put it back into the conversation that these people can defend themselves and are doing it, are doing it. And those are the activists that need to be supported. So to me, it was it was it was a beginning of justice when I saw when I helped pass the D.C. Domestic Workers Bill of Rights that came into law in December 18 of 2022. That was a bill that we these women of the district had been working for years two three years to get passed into law and guess what their own labor after clocking out of cleaning some rich white woman's homes they were coming back <clears throat> sorry i just choked <laughs> yeah it's so unfortunate <laughs> damn i was going so strong but these women <laughs> themselves are like a more rights in for themselves and these are literally Black and brown women who who have women who have raised me and women who have taught me and I and I think that to me it's like those are the organizers doing it like they, those are the people doing it and those are the people that need to be supported and those are the people that need to be given the 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 support and so I say that but to another point of Shayla's point of what, who who we help at College Access for Non Citizens. I I think I could take this moment right now to reflect and be like wow Shayla and I have come a very long way from the people that the, from the little girls that we used to be back in 2017 you know Shayla and I fought very hard for an education. We went to community college. We were undocumented. We paid tuition out of our own pocket. Three I, jobs I worked each. three jobs each to pay and make way through community college. And by the grace of God and by my freaking labor, I got myself into Georgetown University. And now oh, I'm with a full ride. And now I am, I'm debt free and I am commencing my life. And that wouldn't have been possible had it not been for the little conversations that That I had with other people who had come before me and who have shown me, hey, this is possible and you can do it too. And so at Cannes, it's such a privilege to be able to help the brown kids who are getting told no every day. The brown kids who are getting told, hey, maybe you should like, maybe college isn't for you. Maybe you should go and and, and go work or go to a technical school. And there's completely nothing wrong with that. But the way that you are limiting barriers from social mobility, from or taking the way of the empowerment for these kids to have these dreams, that is violence and stagnation. And that is preventing economic and racialized mobility. So to me, the work that we are being done, and it's so personal. It's personal and it, it has the power to change one life. the better like for example there's this kid one of my mentees who i help out he was telling me like oh i wasn't even gonna go to college at all and now he's like on his first semester at community college and one of his dreams is to transfer to like princeton university or columbia or all these other schools and i know that he can do it because hey I did it. I went to community college. I have all these barriers, uh, like that, try to stop me. But there is some way, somehow, maybe by the grace of God, maybe sheer luck, whatever people want to believe in. But it's possible, and dreams can come true. And and he looks at me now, and he's like, one of my biggest dreams is to go to Harvard Law, and for you're the only person who I know that is going to go to Harvard Law. And I'm just like that's really crazy. Like having that experience is everything to a lot of people because it was everything to me. And it is some of the things that I owe to the people who have helped me in my journey. And that's doing the work for the love of your community.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) I'm so observing all that I had one last question and I think it ties in directly to that. I'm trying to think of how to phrase it right now. I feel, I don't know how to say this in a way, I guess, because I wouldn't say we're not radical.
1: Radical is just tackling things at its root. Like we're just seeing it for what it is. We put the puzzle pieces together that the government doesn't want us to puzzle.
0: Put together, yeah.
1: Together, you know.
0: I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like, hmm, a big criticism of elite institutions like Georgetown, like Princeton is that, and even government structures, Congress, the White House, you can't tear down the master's house with the master's tools. Uh, I have to acknowledge how much good you can do when given access to these tools, when you give access to voices like yourselves and your community and the people that you help out. So I wanna just get your thoughts on the importance of access to university, to law school, especially in the face of everything we just talked about, I
1: want to answer this <laughs> because I have um, a quote uh, from W.E.B. Du Bois that can start me off with just this train of thought because it's something that I, I we, we all recognize. We talk with, about it, you all know. The time. We, you have to. It's a part of um, the process. But he, W.E.B. Du Bois says, "For education among all kinds of men, for." education among all kinds of men always has had and always will have an element of danger and revolution of dis- of dis- dissatisfaction and discontent nevertheless men strive to know and i think that i i i am incredibly grateful for my education for the tools that i have today to be able to redesign and reimagine a world that i want to live in and 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 it's a complex question but we mm-hmm. live in a world where these structures are 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 ruling right now yeah are you well i love this question and i think it's no coincidence that you ask it because it's i think it's a common debate that any organizer any decolonial theorist any Mm -hmm. any anti you know like any, anyone talking about reparations you know slavery colonialism these are the two genocide. The, in genocide these are the pillars that you know have brought the world to be what it is today like literally damn that, the transatlantic slavery like what if it had never happened like you know like it has these consequences to every single nation in the in, in the world but I think a lot about this question because we we often debate it in critical race theory classes all the time. It comes up all the time. And I think that this is where, I don't know, I think a lot of people think that my politics lean on the left. And I would disagree because I honestly don't see myself as a leftist. I don't see myself as anyone on the right. You know, I, I'm not saying that I'm in the middle either. I'm simply saying that it's time that we view The world in in a different way in a holistic way in a way that just centers love you know my politics is love that's what my politics is and so when I think about it and I said this to a friend who I was having a conversation with and it's like there's so much hopelessness in this world there's no doubt about it there's no easy answers. There's no doubt about it. Nobody in this world has the answers to liberation the way that we think that we do, you know. Yeah. I think that indigenous sovereignty and black liberation are great steps that, you know, will lead us to healing the wounds of generational trauma that our ancestors have faced. But I think that when we think beyond, we don't know. We don't have the answers. But there's one thing that remains constant, and it's what Du Bois himself has said. And it says that education will always, always be a pillar and a key to liberation. I'm not saying that well-educated people are in bigots because we are, we have proof that they are. You know, they're, they're around us, us every all the time. World. But I'm saying that education is a fundamental necessity for us to become liberated and I think that this is why I am so passionate about education equity because I know what it feels like to know that I to think that I might not go to college Mm -hmm. I know what it feels like to not only just have my creative talent limited to have my my epistemologies limited. I know what that feels like and so I know the power of education. And I know as an undocumented woman, I am very empowered today because of my education. But I also come from a family who who has taught that education isn't just everything, you know. The the work that we do with our hands, the work that we feel intrinsically you know, people who the knowledge tradition yeah. passed down by 40. so I'm not saying that going to college is going to free us. That's not what I'm it's saying. It's more so about raising consciousness. But it's about raising consciousness, and it's about giving people those tools that everybody else in this world all are given. You know, and, all and have, have, and, have, and, have right and, and have the right to. You know, in college, I think at least for students at Georgetown. You can kind of see what their education means to to people, right? And I'm not gonna speak for people's experiences, but it's evident when people are not appreciative of 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 the of their privilege to be a college student. But every single time I walked on campus, you know, I walked on a campus that was literally built by our ancestors. And where people have died and lost lives. But I also walk knowing that I'm an indigenous woman reclaiming an education, reclaiming and not just taking up space, because I feel like lately I've been like, what the fuck is taking up space? Like, I'm like, nah, like, this is my land. But, like, but there's this. but there's power being in, in an indigenous woman sitting in a classroom of, inside White Gravener, White Gravener named after one of the Jesuits who was the responsible for conversion of indigenous children into like catholicism and um school boarding schools like someone who led them like evil and and there's power in that because you are, are are like for example shayla and i are the first people in my family to go out of state for university. A lot of my family was educated in Mexico, but Shayla and I were the first woman to go to a university like Georgetown. And to me, like that. we first gen. Yeah, we are first gen. And so it's like, there is power in granting the tools that exist today that are what, are what is giving a lot of other people the right to go out to rule the world. And so it comes back down to this to answer your question. And it's why when <clears throat> race-based affirmative action was taken away in the Supreme Court, why it, why it sat a lot with me. And it's because it's as simple as this. They don't want students of color, youth. They don't want these kids. To know you know and we see it with the book bans we see it with with the trans the the anti-trans policies that are being implemented around the country and it's because of consciousness and they don't want us to be aware so I think that you know the saying about the tools in the master's house it's 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 very applicable in many cases but I think that at the end of the day there's a reason why they don't want to us to have these tools and education is a tool to liberation and so while we live in these systems we are entitled to them and we will continue to fight for education for students of color and undocumented students yeah and I think one last example that can be recognized is Georgetown University is the number one school that produces the most congressmen in the United States that's just like a fact that's out there who are these people who are getting admit admitted into Georgetown? You know, like Georgetown is a PWI in every sense, in every sense. What is their plan for admissions to tackle this problem of race-based affirmative action? I can confidently say those people have no plan, no substantial plan. I'm sure they are looking into the affinity spaces in Georgetown to be able to do the work for them, putting labor on the already like students of color who are already experiencing a very violent experience at a PWI and are exploiting their labor. These institutions don't want us there and it's for a reason. And it's not to say that I trust every person of color who's going to go on and to do the right thing with these tools that we have because Everyone is different, you know, but the more of us that we can get in there, then perhaps there could be a more collective where we build the world, where we are the ones who are 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 creating policy, where we are the ones who are in the core, where we are the ones running for office, where we are the ones who are getting a spot on there. And I know that a lot of people want, can can come can try to come at me, come at me, like come at me. But right now my life in the like my life as a doctor recipient will be in the hands of nine judges right now who have no idea what it's like to be undocumented and it's like if we can build a world where one day there is more people in the court who are less pieces of shit like maybe a girl can dream that someone like me wouldn't have to be in a position where someone like Brett Kavanaugh is going to be ruling on my fate, you know, and yeah. it's complex and it it's it such a gray area for people. But I'm not afraid to say that I, I look forward to the day where there are people in those in those tables who have a better heart. Yeah. And I think to end to end off because we can talk about this all day, but. There's this, like, specific quote in Olofemi Taiwo's book. In, yes, I love title. this. No. Reconsidering Reparations. I'm reconsidering Reparations. And I think it's the beginning of chapter one or the introduction. It's one of those two. or It's one of the first couple chapters. And he starts by talking and he he ends the chapter with, it's time that they met their match. And he's talking about, you know, the government and he's talking about the oppressors and the white supremacists and the colonizers and the the imperialists and the capitalists and folks who enslaved people. Right. And so we've talked about multiple things today. We've talked about literally so many policy issues and, you know, we come to the understanding that. All of it is interconnected, so it's Inverted essentially this. Time. It's all one huge problem, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's in. It's in. And the truth is, like the world is just on fire, and so what Taiwo says, it's that the issue has always been this big. Mm-hmm. The issue has always been this hopeless, right? Quote unquote. The issue has always always. been this bad from, you know, whether it's the 1920s, the 1800s, like in all these eras, since the beginning of the birth of this nation. And so what he says is, so it's not necessarily about focusing about just like the doom. Because we focus focus on on the evil. we We focus on the evil and we focus on the power of these people so much and so what he finishes his book by is it's time that they met their match and what that means is that every single one of us who you know strives to live in a better world to strive, angering to 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 see justice and, and and be and be free it's time for all us to get fired up and 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 do and do the necessary work in the ways that we are able to and and i go back to this and i go back to poor people you know Mm -hmm. i'm sure there are more poor people out there than there is living amongst you know living in wealth you know that's that's Mm -hmm. the reality poverty poverty is an issue that goes back to the beginning of time but you collect, you create that collective power of solidarity within these, re, within all of us who are angry, with all of us who are suffering. It's time they met their match. So instead of focusing on the grandeur of the evilness and the amount of times that those people have won, why don't we focus on creating such a big, big, big light, like a light of all of our force and equate ourselves to understand that as. we We have power as well as people who have endured the suffering of all of these issues we have something that they don't have and we are we are so so powerful and and i think i see that through a lot of the faith of my dad you know this is a man who has lived in the the u.s for there around 30 years and and is still and still has a lot of hope to be able to return to his country one day that man has endured a lot of suffering but he doesn't give up and he doesn't get pessimistic and he and it's people like that whose strength we should look to and the strength that we ourselves have within ourselves build onto it and build such a uh a collective of power and strength that we it's time we take it back you know it's time we take it back um And so for all the pessimists out listening, because I'm, you know, I'm 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 not going to say that I'm, you know, I think that I'm very optimistic, but I think I'm also very realistic. So, like, I understand. and I come back down to it. It's like, okay, The climate crisis is here. The fossil fuels continue. And at the end of the day, many activists come down to it like we're all going to die. The world is like (laughs) in the world, the world, the earth itself as a planet will reshape and will continue and will continue. But it's about the human race. Right. And so what I think is that a lot of us focus on results and like what we can see in our lifetime. And, you know, that's it's, it's good to be goal oriented. But I think that at the same time, it's like in a hundred years when i'm no longer here on this earth i want my spirit to at least know that it tried and that it did the right thing and that it, it it fought for the people that that they that i love and so i know that at the end of like i said to end this my politics is love i'm not a leftist i'm not this and that i'm just i'm just a lover and i wake up every single day tired and jaded just like the next person does but at the end of the day it's the love for people that i don't know that keeps me going it's the love for the it's the love for my family and so on and so on so i think that any activist out there it's just like it's hard we don't need to know the answers but as long as your spirit and your heart is 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 in the right place and you move through that love then i think that that's all we can ask for that's all we can yeah. ask for. Or from one
0: another yeah absolutely as long as the effort is put in right i okay where do people find you guys and how can they help and all the missions you're doing on a tangible like immediate level i mean sorry <laughs> that's
1: that's such a good plug-in shamelessly i don't care so you can follow me on instagram uh at Mel- melanie donahi d-o-n-a-j-i that's my middle name and Misteco. You can find me on TikTok at a green velvet couch and on Twitter. If you guys are still on there, I'm not super active on there. And you can find college access for non-citizens on Instagram at college access non-citizens. Yeah. And so you can follow me, Shayla on Instagram at Shayla Cruz with two R's and on Twitter, it's also Shayla G Cruz, and then on TikTok, I do a lot of TikToks there. Shayla's a content creator. Please follow me on TikTok. We not only are we activists and organizers, and a whole lot, a lot of other things. We are also digital creators who are also very into aesthetics, lifestyle, being Mm -hmm. just building community online, yeah, and making sure that people with identities. Like ours, don't feel alone. So my TikTok is Oaxacan Princess with three S's. You know we'll have it all linked down below for you guys. But yeah, we would love to stay connected and just again, the last thing that we can say is amplify, yeah, donate, share, repost, like, and tell your neighbor yeah. because these are you know we live in a digital age and I think that if we use it for the right reasons, you know globalization is insane. <laughs> But, and and we were never intended to be this connected, but now we are and the robots are here. Let's use them for yes, for so good. we are very active on college access for non-citizens. That's where we do a lot of our work, our, a lot of education informative infographics. So definitely reaches out there. Our website is currently under construction, but it should be out soon. So look at that. We have our link tree on there too, which shows if you ever want to donate anyone, to our funds because because the work that we do right now is not it's it's not for profit, but we would love a lot of support and just to be able to have our projects come into fruition. We do a lot of community building events, workshops, hybrid. So, you know, you can find us there. And and we all have our own personal link trays as well. But a lot of cool things are coming, a lot Mm -hmm. of empowerment, a lot of education, awareness and raising because we want to make our our issues that we care about accessible to everyone so the more we build community the more impact we have on 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 the world
0: all those links will be in the notes on spotify and apple podcasts thank you you guys are both an inspiration and thank you for sharing your vision of the future really it means a lot
1: yeah, oh, nice. no i can't you. believe you said that no because that's what just we do. yesterday i was my we were hanging out with her friend and we were talking about our dream jobs and she's like well what do you want to do shayla and i was just like all i want to do is share my vision to the world like that's what i want to do and that to me is my indigenous futurism so i can't believe you just said that thank you
0: least i could do thank you so much This has been Minority Report with me, your host, Salomon Flamenco. You can follow us at Instagram uh, in the podcast notes down below. And if you'd like to continue the conversation, you can email us at minorityreport.beat at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.